0: Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. Um, This guest is going, this podcast is going to focus on scrupulosity. That's something we've touched on before in the 500 plus episodes. Autumn White is going to share her story with scrupulosity. Um, But if you want to go deeper and listen to other podcasts about this subject, there's probably three that I'd recommend. Um... And I'll put a link to all our podcasts around scrupulosity in the show notes. But episode 493 is the last one we did around scrupulosity. And that was with Taylor Kirby, who wrote a book on scrupulosity. And our guest here today has actually read that book. Um, two podcasts we did from someone I consider a clinical expert on scrupulosity is Dr. Deborah McClendon. She did episode 336 and episode 191. Um, she is. Um, her practices focused around that, and um, I'll put a link to the to the book I wrote. The most recent book I wrote is Improving Latter Day Saint Culture, and chapter seven is called Overcoming Scrupulosity, and that talks about our own family story. Our youngest son Ben bravely shares his story with scrupulosity, and his journey to find healing and the people that came into life to do that. So, um, Autumn, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Richard, for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: It's very brave for anybody to walk into my home, which Autumn has done, or join via Zoom and share their story. Um, Autumn is um, in her late 30s. She's married. She has a daughter. She grew up in Idaho. She's an active member of the church. And um, unlike my son, who was diagnosed at around 19, Autumn was diagnosed just a year ago in her late 30s. And um, the first signs of this came into her life um, in her teenage years. So she has been walking the road with scrupulosity for two decades plus um, without a diagnosis. And some of you may be walking a similar road or have people in your life that have undiagnosed scrupulosity. I didn't know anything about this until our own son. We talk about that in the book. um, And we're very blessed to have gotten a diagnosis early in his life. Diagnosis. So our joint prayer is that Autumn sharing her story will help you if you uh, have scrupulosity or or if you are a parent or a friend or a local leader and someone in your circle has scrupulosity that you can recognize this and get them the professional help that they need to solve this. Is that okay for an introduction?
1: That's perfect. Thank you.
0: So at this point, I think you're going to share your story and I think you're going to start you're going to go back 20 years when you were a teenager.
1: Right. So, yeah, this starts when I was at the age of 16. Um, so it all began when I was at home with my dad. We were just enjoying like a quiet evening at home, um, watching TV. And I remember sitting in my living room and the thought came to my head, if I, have I ever felt the spirit before? And I kept trying to think long and hard about that. And I couldn't answer that. And I'm not saying like I've never had any influence by the spirit, I just could not recall a specific um, memory of the spirit. So I remember I got really concerned. And so I went, I left the living room, I went to my bedroom, and I just, so I could have some quiet time to just really think about um, if I had felt the spirit before. And I remember gotcha, I got gotcha to the point where I thought to myself, if I said the word no to answer that question, But any shred of me thought like it was a yes or believed it was a yes, that I would be denying the Holy Ghost or in other words, committing the unpardonable sin. And that really scared me. And so I left my bedroom and I went down to my dad's bedroom and I got on the floor and I kneeled and I went to, you know, pray to my father about this. And I think I asked like if I'd felt the spirit before. Um, But in the middle of my prayer, I think the word no just went into my head. And I just started physically panicking and not that I thought Heavenly Father was answering me. No, I think it's just because I didn't want to say no. And so I think I bolted. I don't think I, um, I don't think I finished the prayer. (laughs) I left my dad's bedroom and I was just so scared and worried that I went down the hall rushed, and I just like sat in his lap and I just cuddled with him. And like, you know, if, If a 16-year-old is cuddling with her dad, it's probably an indicate how scared I was. Um, So I don't remember like the bulk bulk of our conversation, but I do remember at the end of it, I said, Dad, I want to go back to church. And because I was inactive at the time. And then I remember after that night, I think my first interaction with the church again was, or my first memory after that was, um, at a mutual event. Um, and so us girl, young girls were, I remember us riding in the back of a trailer and we were like standing up cause this was like, we were Christmas caroling. And so I think this was in December of 1999. And I remember just feeling so happy to be there. And, um, I remember the, the young women's presidency was walking behind us cause You know, it's going slow enough for them to keep up behind us. And one of the presidency members said to me, because it was dark, but she's like, is that autumn? And I said, yeah. And I said, like, I had like the largest smile I could ever have. And um, she said, well, welcome back. And I remember now when I think about how I felt during that mutual activity, that I clearly see that I was feeling the influence of the spirit. And that's what was giving me that really joyous feeling of being back to church. Um, and then after that, you know, I was going back to church and we, um, I, I, I started seminary and I think this was January of 2000. And I had not registered for seminary the whole year. It was just that, that spring semester. Um, and um, I remember um, we were learning about the doctrine and covenants that year and I tell you I felt the spirit so many times that semester it was like I felt like so much joy and peace and love and I could feel how much Heavenly Father loved me it's like there were just times the spirit was just really powerful and just phenomenal the way I felt and I but also the really wonderful thing about that semester is I actually gained a testimony of things that I did didn't know were true before then and so i remember so i gained a testimony of things like i would say basic things of the church i gained a testimony of like the plan of salvation i gained a testimony of um, temples and i gained a testimony of the scriptures themselves because <coughs> <Excuse me. coughs> i had felt such a really intimate connection with the spirit reading the scriptures and um, I just felt that he was teaching me and testifying the truths that I was reading in the scriptures. And so that's that's why I say the Doctrine and Covenants is my favorite because of those really sweet, intimate moments that I had with the Spirit. And that just is like one of my favorite all-time memories with the Holy Ghost was that semester. Um, and then when seminary got out, you know, at the end of the semester, um, I kind of— stopped reading the scriptures and saying my prayers and I felt like seminary was such an anchor. It helped me like really like you know do the things like read your scriptures say your prayers and stuff like that but when it got out you know I kind of stopped doing them and that's actually the time when my OCD started to get worse and what's interesting is when my testimony developed it was the same time it, it, my OCD developed too so I felt like two, op- two opposed, opposing things at the same time one in the great good direction, one in a negative direction. But um. so, but I thought, you know, like I said, I was diagnosed last year, so I didn't know I had OCD. So I thought that my thoughts getting worse about denying the Holy Ghost, I thought that um, it was because since I wasn't reading the scriptures and saying my prayers, I thought the spirit was moving away from me and Satan was coming in to, you know, Tempt me to do that. And so that's, you know, what was going on in my head. Um, so I remember, so about like a few weeks to a month after school gets out and uh, we had this thing called the Cherry Festival in M.I. and it still goes on to this day. And so it's, it's like the funnest thing that people look forward to. I think it's just kicks off the summer. But um, so it's just what we, at the Cherry Festival, you have like carnival and you have like food and all that good stuff. Um, so I remember standing in the line to get on the child's roller coaster ride and my thoughts were coming at me pretty heavy, I think. Um, and I remember getting on the ride and sitting down and right before it started to move, I had this, I'd say like a clear, stern thought that just hit me. And I thought at the time that it was a warning from the Holy Ghost saying, if I keep thinking these thoughts that I am going to deny the Holy Ghost. And so it really freaked me out. (laughs) Um, Because I know, and I know, I know, I knew at the time, I knew now that, um, I know now that um, the Holy Ghost does warn us in you know problems and pitfalls that can come in our life. But he doesn't do it, like he doesn't invoke fear and anxiety. He does it out of love. And when I evaluate my, feelings when i had that thought coming into my head it was just anxiety and fear and um and some people might not be aware of this but people with scrupulosity can have thoughts come into their minds that they think is the holy ghost warning them or telling them to do something when it's just their their um ocd thoughts um so i'd say like a few weeks or so after that carnival got um the cherry festival was done um So my dad took me to another carnival at Boise State University. And that day before we went there, um, earlier that day, um, I remember sitting at my computer and um, a thought just came into my head, like, I don't believe in God. And it startled me. And I thought to myself, I just said to myself, wait a minute, that's not me. I mean, I'm not saying I don't believe in God. But I thought that I allowed that thought to come in and therefore, if I allowed it to come in, I desired it. And therefore, it, you know, I, you know, I, I've, I've committed it. So, um, and I remember just getting really anxious and just pleading with Heavenly Father, like, because I was just scared that I had, I'd done it. And I remember when we went to that carnival, I was just, it was just on my mind completely all the time. And I would just didn't enjoy myself. Um, And then sometime later, um, I remember um, going to my grandma's house and I was spending, I spent the night at her house. And I remember it was a Saturday night because we were, my dad was picking me up um, the next day to take me to church. And I remember I was in her living room and I don't think anybody was with me. And I remember my thoughts were just coming at me really bad. And I was sitting in one chair and I would go to the next, I would just, go to the next chair and come back and forth. And I was just like squirming and I was fidgeting and I was just really uncomfortable with my thoughts. And I'd say if you, if you were watching me from a distance, you would probably think my skin was crawling because it, it was just so bad that it was manifesting in like physical movements with my body. And um, it got really bad to the point that I thought to myself, I just denied that there's an afterlife. And I thought, well, if I deny there's an afterlife, I've denied Christ. I've denied Heavenly Father. I've denied that everybody exists in the afterlife. And therefore, I thought I denied the Holy Ghost because then I'm saying, in a way, I'm saying that that the testimony that's born to me of all these things from the Spirit is invalid. And I remember that night, I just couldn't sleep. I felt... My heart was pounding. I just was scared. I thought, okay, well, I am, I'm going to outer darkness when I, don't, when I die. And um, I probably s- slept uh, like maybe a half hour here and there. I could not sleep. I was so terrified. I thought, oh, I just betrayed my Savior and everything's over for me. And then I got up that morning. I remember I was in my, I went, I was in my grandma's bathroom. And I remember my dad called me. He's coming over and I was crying on the phone to him. And I said, I don't think I want to live anymore. And um, because I thought, you know, if I've committed the impertal sin, what else? I mean, what is what is there to live anymore? Um, but then, you know, I didn't want to like, commit suicide because I thought, well, if I did, um, I don't want to go to hell just yet. So I want to stay here for at least a while. Um And so um, I went to church with my dad. I remember sitting in sacrament meeting with my head just like really low. And I remember um, a sister gets up, she goes to the pulpit and she, um, you know, she's giving some talk, I think. Um, And I looked up at her and I don't remember the exact thought, thought that came into my mind, but I think I said, there's no God or I don't believe in God or something like that. And then I just... I said to myself, oh, I just did it again. And um, when church got out that day, um, my dad and I were sitting outside of the bishop's office and because he was doing um, interviews for the youth to attend the temple. And um, my dad was trying to get me to um, do an interview so I could go to the temple. And I said, I can't, I'm not worthy to go to the temple. And he kept saying he's really persistent. He's like, you should go get an interview and go to the temple. And I'm like, no, I can't. I am not worthy to go to the temple. And I think after a while he just kind of gave up, you know. And um, cause I was, I was really scared to tell anybody about this. Cause, and the reason is, is if I tell them and then they I, you know, they may validate my fear and tell me I did and especially if i told my bishop he would validate my fears and then he would excommunicate me and i just i didn't want to live with this but i didn't want that risk i didn't want to, to risk um, you know being excommunicated i didn't want to lose my church membership and then if i knew if i if my membership was taken away from me and then i um and then i lived the rest of my life thinking i was going to hell for all eternity when i died like, what do I have to live for? And am I going to then commit suicide? Because I feel like my whole life was over. Um, so I would say like, I compare, I think this, I think that was around the end of summer. So if I would compare my, how I felt toward like the end of summer to how I felt in seminary, um, it was like a vast difference in happiness. Like, when I was in seminary, I just felt so much joy and peace and love. And I felt so close to the spirit. And then I went to this like utter despair, this dark feeling and feeling like I had lost the, the, the Holy Ghost forever completely. And I would never get to feel his presence again. And that devastated me. And so I kind of like to conceptualize things. And so just to kind of give, give more of a clear picture, like the way I felt during those seminary months is I felt like I was standing on like really tall mountain, like a really tall mountain that you could find on this earth. And I felt like as if I was pushed off and I went into like a state of free fall because it just went so fast. And then I landed into like, I would say like a deep, a dark abyss. It was just, it was just, oh, it was awful, you know? And I don't, And I, I, it sounds. I'm so calm, like the way I talk about this now, but because I've healed so much. But there's no. I was not like this when when that happened. I felt alone and dark inside. When everybody else, I felt everybody is feeling the spirit all the time, and I just felt miserable. Um, So, um, so say around that time, like after all this happened, I. I painfully avoided the scriptures like I felt um, it was hard for me to turn to those scriptures because I thought, you know, I thought that I had done the worst thing. And so I think my scriptures, I had this triple combination seminary I used. And I, I remember marking it up so much with like marking up this, the verses. I put so many inserts in it and I left it like I think it was in my, in my, my dining room for a long time and I didn't want to even touch it. Because it was just too painful to look at and open. Because I felt so much happiness. I felt the Spirit so much. And I thought that all that stuff was just gone for me. And I also felt like, I felt like I, it was like a death. I felt like, I, my, like the love my Heavenly Father had for me and the closest I felt for Him was like I died. I felt like, I think part of me was thinking maybe this was what the second death would feel like. It was just awful. Um and so, but after a while, like I didn't want it to be this way. I didn't want to like, I was desperate. I I didn't want to have committed the harmful sin. I don't want to, I want to be able to fill the spirit again. I, I want to be able to go to the temple and all those things. So eventually I started doing compulsions with the scriptures and I it's like an act of desperation, maybe if you want to say. Um so what I would do is I'd open up my scriptures and I would passively read them, like not actively searching the scriptures to try to um, learn about the, the gospel and learn about um, what Christ wants me to do and how, to, how I can apply his teachings to my life. It was like completely passive. And when I meant passive, I only opened the scriptures just to, just to read them and then just wait for like any sign of the Spirit to just come in. And when I went do that, I would do it again, and again, and again. Um, so, you know, like I said, I wasn't active in reading. I was just, it was a compulsion because I would just wanted to make sure that, because I thought, well, if if I felt the Spirit and I knew the Spirit was there, that would tell me I haven't committed the parable sins. So I was just purely desperate to feel some type of peace. And, um, and then I also started doing um, prayer compulsions too. And so I want to back up to um, that seminary semester. Um, I was at my aunt's house um, and I was babysitting my cousin. And um, I remember um, just being really bothered. And I think that um, I I was, I can't quite remember if I was worried that at the time, if I was worried that the spirit was taking me, taken away from me permanently or just like, for a while, like, you know, if I wasn't doing enough, like things to keep the spirit with me. Um, so I remember going into my, my aunt's bedroom and I knelt on the floor and I said a prayer. And I remember just pouring my heart out to my father and I was just crying. And I was, and I remember asking him, if I still had the spirit with me, can I please fill it, his presence? And so I remember getting up from that and I remember I go, I went to get my cousin um, because we were going, we were walking down to the park to, um, to go to play. And I remember we, we left the house and we went down, went out the back door, we went down the steps and through their gate. And then we walked down the um, sidewalk and I see like moments after we walked down the s- sidewalk, I felt this beautiful confirmation from the spirit, but I still had him with me. And I started to, to weep again and i just my um i felt happy and i also um i it strengthened my testimony that my family father te- hears my prayers and i knew he heard them and um and then i remember saying these words with tears on my coming down my face and i said prayer is so essential and i said that over and over and over cuz i just felt so happy and so um so fast forward to when I started doing prayer compulsions. Um that's what that's what led me to do those compulsions. And I'm not knocking that that experience with the spirit because I I mean I I feel very privileged sharing that experience with everyone because I love that. I loved feeling the spirit and let my heavenly father answer my prayers. But knowing that I could pray to ask Heavenly Father if I felt this, if I saw the spirit with, let me feel the spirit, I could do it again. And so later, so fast forward to my prayer compulsions. That's why I would do is I would pray and ask him, Father, I'm like, you know, please send me the spirit. I want to feel the spirit to make sure I haven't denied the Holy Ghost. And I still had him with me. And I'd I'd sit there and I'd wait. And when I wouldn't feel anything, I'd do it again and and again. And I don't know the I don't know the time span between each prayer, but I did it a lot and for a long time and very frequently to where it is definitely a compulsion that I was doing. Um, so this kind of, this behavior just went on for a long time. Um, and then, you know, and I got out of co- uh, not college yet, sorry. Um, I got out of high school and then I went um, at, to Boise State University um, for college. and I. Um, I, I don't think I did it the whole time, but I, I did attend a YSA ward, and I did go to Institute a few times and then I hung out at the Institute building a lot too. Um, but um, those, those times when I was at like my YSA ward and Institute, I did not have good experience there. Um, so when I was going there, I actually had a desire to serve a mission. Um, I really wanted to, but I didn't go through with it because I thought, well, to be a missionary, you need to teach by the Spirit. And how can I, if I don't have the Holy Ghost anymore? So, and then I thought, because the Holy Ghost gives me like peace and the motivation and courage to do scary things. And how can I do a mission and, and go to work these long hours on a mission and, um, kept doors slammed in my face and I heard people get harassed sometimes. I'm like, I don't think I'd have the strength to go through that. So I think my, my desire was still there, but my, um, I, I just dropped it. I didn't even pursue it any longer. And then part of, you know, going to like why, especially why I say Institute is a lot of, it's the dating scene, you know, everybody always talking about dating all right left around me. Um, but I did date a few people, um, one of them, I only went on a couple dates with. Um, and um, another one, I had a more serious relationship and they were both return missionaries, by the way. But, um, I'm, you know, part of me wanted the relationships to get serious because who wouldn't, right? But um, most of them, the majority of me did not want it to progress and get serious because the the thing about that is, It might get to the point where they would want to take me to the temple to get married. And I couldn't, I would, I would have to tell them no. And then they probably would be like, well, if it ever got to that point, I'm saying like, if they'd be like, well, why can't you go to the temple? And like I said before, I couldn't tell anybody. I was too scared to tell anybody. So I wouldn't be able to tell them. So those relationships would eventually have dissolved anyways, because there's no way I would have been able to tell anybody until now because i I had no idea what the part of them really meant, um, but I just you know I felt like I could never attend the temple again um, but then also going to church and institute like there'd be certain triggers I'd have um, that would either bring because I was like in a state of you know my OCD would give me a lot of anxiety, but I felt like it put me into a deep, dark depression that things would trigger um, remind me of all I committed this and i don't have the spirit anymore i've lost the spirit so they felt like so you know validations or and i also think that i thought there were certain times that they were actually answers to prayers because especially if these validations came well not validations but if they came like right closely after i said a prayer to ask heavenly father i would think he's answering me um a couple examples i have is when I attended the first one is I attended my YSA ward. Um actually both of them are. But this first one was, I remember, I think it was fast and testimony meeting. And this one um, young woman gets up to the pulpit, and I think I think it was a fast and testimony, but she's bearing her testimony. But she um she was trying to hold back her tears. She was or crying. And she told us that she was counseled by her bishop not to take the sacrament for some time. Um, And so I remember her just like holding back her tears, looking up at the ceiling and saying these words, among other words, she said, it felt so dark. And I just, I think my anxiety just peaked fast. And I'm like, oh no, she's saying she felt dark. I felt dark. So that must mean I did it. And like, I think I felt, like I said before, I think I thought Heavenly Father was answering my prayers. And, um, you know, just those are scary situations at the time for me. And and then I remember another one, oh, I was in the same YSA ward and um, I had gotten a church calling. And I don't know if they still have this calling anymore, but it was to be the ward greeter. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but... Um, I was excited to get that calling. And because I thought Heavenly Father was reaching out to me, telling me, giving me hope and saying, you haven't done this through my calling. And so what I did is I started like, I wanted to have a validation that it meant something. Like he was reaching out to me. So I'd search like the scriptures and stuff on like callings and stuff. And I remember coming up to this scripture and it's, um, these two verses and it's in Doctrine and Covenants section 95 and I believe it's verse five and six um and I'm not I'm not quoting the whole like every word for word but it says like um many are called few are chosen um they that have not been chosen have sinned a very grievous sin and that they are walking in darkness at noonday and (laughs) I just freaked out when I read that and you know, I, I think I thought that Heavenly Father was answering my prayer through that. And I remember walking, um, I think I was walking from like the student union building and institute one day. And I remember the sun was shining bright and it was probably, I don't know if it was around noon to be specific, but that, those verses were on my mind. And I'm like, and, it, and just walking, walking in the bright sun and feeling dark inside, just further, I felt like further validated it for me and so over the years i kind of just cycled through inactivity and activity so all that stuff that i just mentioned about like you know like compulsions with prayer in the scriptures and feeling like i'm getting validations right um just kind of occurred a lot and so what i mean by inactivity and activity is um i would i would either go to church but i would feel just like this dark empty shell when i go so i like passively going to church or um, I would just stop going because sometimes i I would read something or I'd see something and I think in the, the heavenly father's giving me hope that maybe I haven't done this and so then I would start doing compulsions and my anxiety would get really bad and then I couldn't take it anymore eventually I just give up and then I would stop trying and so my anxiety would go away, but actually, it only went away because I stopped doing compulsions. Um, but um, like I said, it was just like I—it was. I think my majority to that t- time in my early twenties through, n- like you know, just recently, um, I was probably inactive for the majority of the years because um, I thought to myself, if I can't make it back to my only father and I'm doomed to go to hell forever, what's the point? and going to church anymore. When I feel like, I think there's that word stagnant. Like I feel like my eternal progression was halted. I could not feel like I was making any progress. So I didn't really have a motivation to attend church. And it was just all this OCD that was going on like behind the scenes. I had no idea. So like I mentioned, it it occurred for a long time. And then I'd say like, "Eh, maybe like six, seven years ago or something like that. I started getting just I feel like signs like Heavenly Father was trying to reach out to me, Um, and you know they're pretty significant. So this actually led me into I well I felt like let me let me come back. I felt like I wanted to I wanted to confront the pardons sin. Like I wanted to actually see what it what it is because I was so naive about it for the longest time. So I remember I would go to the church website and I'd search terms like denying the holy ghost, mortal sin. And when I would do that, I my my heart would pound so bad. I mean if the typical church member would search those terms, they wouldn't even be worried about it. They would just put it in there. But I was just scared because I was afraid of what it's going to tell me. Um and then I would read and I wouldn't really get any answers and then I, you know, I lose hope again and stuff and then Eventually it got to the point where, um, you know, I really, you know, really, really wanted to know because I felt like Heavenly Father was sending people like my way to tell me, to help me with this. And so I did like excessive Googling, I'd say. Um, I would, I read so many websites about the Unperable Sin. I not only read the church, what, like what the church had to say about it. I also read a lot of other church based out there, what they said. I watched a ton of videos of pastors talking about what it is. Um, that's how bad it was. Um, and then I read a lot of church materials on this. And so what I mean is like so in the gospel library you have like like the different I'd say I think they're called courses. So you have like seminary institute, you have like teachings of the president of the church and a whole bunch of different manuals. And then specifically like when it comes to like institute and seminary, you have you know, like the Book of Mormon, like I know for seminary, you have book, book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, and like Old New Testament. But I know in in Institute, I think it's just because it's more advanced, they have different ones. But then you also have um, instructor and teacher manuals of like Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants. And I, I went through like, you know, the search, the search bar on the church website, but I combed through all those books. I combed through everything because I just wanted, like with, with with OCD, I wanted certainty and I just wasn't, I felt like I was just hungry and like my appetite for certainty just would never get satisfied. I just kept reading church materials. So, I mean, who does that? Nobody does that. That doesn't have scrupulosity is not going to do that. Um. um and then... Another th- another thing I did is I remember there was one quote about like one of the general authorities about the impartial sin and it's in one of the manuals and I remember I took what he wrote about it what he said I think it was I don't know if it was a conference talk or whatever and I took it and I highlighted it and I took a snapshot and I put it on the background of my phone so I could read it over and over and I remember taking like a lot of websites about the impartial sin and I saved them to the back that I saved into my phone. And so I could read them over and over. Um, and, you know, if, if anybody's thinking, wow, this is, this is irrational behavior. I agree. And I even knew at the time, a lot of times that it was irrational, but OCD just does something to you where it's like, you, you need to know. And it just, even like, I got to the point where I knew, like I was reading these things. I knew I hadn't committed it by based on what I was reading. But I just, I had so much doubt. Like that part of my brain was just feeding me doubt um, all the time. And, you know, some people might think, well, how can you doubt when you know? You can with OCD. It's very deceptive, I'd say. It's just an awful, awful disorder. Um, but then I finally got to the point where I'm not getting better. I need I need help. I need to figure out that oh, out. And the reason why it's like, I couldn't understand why am I reading this, reading all these things about them Imparableson, but I'm not getting better. Because I, I thought in my mind that I found a loophole. I'm like, it says I didn't, but I thought maybe I did it. Maybe I just, you know, like, I, like you know what a loophole is. You just, you thought you did it anyways. And so I finally talked to my sister about it. And I had been reaching out to her, I think like 15 years every now and then trying to get the courage to tell her. And I couldn't tell her, but I finally told her. And the reason is, is because I actually had hope. I actually read what it meant. And so it gave me actually more courage to ask her, not think, oh, she's going to tell me. But even I remember even telling her and I still was scared she was going to tell me I did anyways. Um, and then when I told her, she said, you know, obviously you didn't do this. But we independently um, thought that I needed to go see my bishop. And talk to him about it. So, I needed an appointment with the bishop, and this was in December of 2020, by the way. Um, I was scared to, to to meet with him. I was scared to make that appointment. I finally did, because I knew I knew I didn't do it, but then I knew I have to do this to 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 start to heal and to get over this. Um. So I remember um, I called up. I think it was the the ward secretary, and then they made an appointment. And so this was during when COVID was going on. So Um, Our bishop wasn't meeting people in his office, so we had to do it via Zoom. And so I had people at home, so I needed a place to go. So I actually did it in my car on my phone. (laughs) And I thought, this is just so weird. I'm like, I'm talking about the imparable sin twenty years later to a bishop on my phone. Um, But yeah, I remember it was a Sunday, and I remember sitting in my car at an empty, empty church parking lot, by the way, and when I was waiting to get on Zoom with him, my heart was just pounding, but I was I was happy that I was finally get to that point because I've been waiting for this point for a long, a long time to talk to a bishop. And then when I got on Zoom with him and I told, and I said the words to him, I was afraid that I had denied the Holy Ghost. He, um, when I said that, I, I don't think I was looking him in the face. I think, because I had my phone in front of me and I think my head was, down toward my floor my car and the reason is, is because I felt I think I just felt shame and I felt embarrassed I felt like he was going to judge me and and then tell me I found a loophole <laughs> you know but I didn't get that at all from him he just showed me so much love and compassion and um and um so even though like, and so just to remind everyone, um, like, you know, I haven't gotten diagnosed with scrupulosity, so I didn't know it even, even existed yet. But um, um, it wasn't wasted behavior at all. And I know that when you have, when, you know, eventually when you're going through therapy and you want to um, to get better, you need to stop like with compulsion. So, um, so when I talked to him, and I think I'm going ahead of myself, but when I talked to him that first time, I felt relief. And so this is actually reassurance-seeking when it comes to scrupulosity. So I felt relief. And then I'd say about like a month or so later, I started feeling urges to go back. And I made another appointment with him. And I talked to him again, and I felt relief. And then a month goes by, and then I do it again. And I saw the bishop six times in eight months. And that's a record. Um, I think when I was young, I'd go to the bishop maybe like once a year or something like that. And this was, this was a lot just because it was, I just, you know, you feel like this relief and this happiness, but then your, your OCD just comes back. But I still had really wonderful experiences with him. I had really wonderful spiritual experiences with him. I felt the spirit talking with me when I talked to him. And I have some really special, I'd say sacred experiences that I have in my journal that I won't share because they're just too special to me. Um, But like I said, he just showed so much love and compassion and I'm just so grateful that I got to talk to him. Um, And so um, when I did go back to church, this was like January of 2021, I believe, yeah. Um, We... um, I started attending the um, Relief Society of the ward, and we did this thing called um, Sister Spotlight. And what it is is, you um, when you're new in the ward, you um, fill out this form, and it just says like you just write down like what stuff you like to do for fun, food you like, you know, your ideal vacation without the kids or something like that. (laughs) Um, And so I filled mine out and then i submitted it and then it comes they would they would send a new one out with the, the relief society newsletter um, and then i waited and a while they did mine and my friend jennifer in my ward my current ward actually i'm in she um she read mine and so she contacted me through zoom cuz we were doing relief society on zoom at the time and she really liked it and so she um She wanted to get to know me and she's, so we started talking to each other, like, you know, through text, we started changing text messages and we sent a lot of texts over time and we got really, like, she was really interested in me and helping me and, you know, talking about the things that I was struggling with. And I eventually opened up to her about what I was going through and I realized it was because of her compassion. The compassion helped me to open up um, and then when she when I opened up to her about my my struggles, she um she said to me, Autumn, like I know I can't diagnose you because I don't have a, a license to do so. But I have a friend that had got diagnosed with a condition called strebulosity OCD. And she said, Well, I know, so I know that since you said that you were going to counseling, that you could probably bring it up with your counselor. And but at the time, I don't think she knew this, but I because I went, I went to counseling and I went once, but I stopped going because I thought, because the counselor that I had, like he started to zone in on like an area in my life I just wasn't ready to talk about yet. And that's what kind of made me stop wanting to go. Um but um her telling me this about scrupulosity and I know, and then it just telling me over and over, I'm like, I got to get better. So I finally, um, I went to my bishop and talked to him about it and I wanted to get somebody else, another therapist. So he, he um, initiated the transfer to someone else and um, I finally went back. And then when I went back, um, I got diagnosed with scrupulosity That within like the first 15 minutes talking to her Um, and so what i want to say about this is um, i i know how my father brought her into my life for this reason um because it's not just the fact that she knew about oc scrupulosity and not a lot of people still know about this but she knew about it but it was her compassion because i couldn't really open up to people so the compassion And the non-judgment that she gave me helped me like start opening up because I knew I could talk to somebody about the things I was going through. And then that's what led me to um, um, go into therapy and getting officially diagnosed. Um, So, and then I have another friend, I won't name his name, but um, um, we've been friends for a long time. And um, so, you know, he's in the Utah area. But, um, when I did get diagnosed with a screwball, let me back up. Um, so I actually, for a while, like I wanted to tell him about what I'd been struggling with for 20 years. And so I finally, I didn't actually send like write a text out. I sent him like an article that says, what is the unforgivable sin? And I attached it to a text message and then I sent it to him. And then he texted me back and said, wow, I worried about this too. And I'm like, wow, really? Um, And then when I did get diagnosed with scrupulosity, OCD, I didn't tell him immediately because I was afraid he's going to say, your therapist is wrong. And actually with Jennifer, like there for a while, I didn't want to tell her things. I was excited about some of the things that the bishop would tell me, but I didn't want to tell her because I was afraid she'd say, well, the bishop's wrong. You know, it's just my OCD talking and making me doubt like this information that people are telling me is wrong. but three weeks after my diagnosis, I finally told him and I sent him a text message and saying, I got diagnosed with a mental condition. And that's all I said. And just said mental condition. And then he texts me back and he says, I'm so sorry. I got diagnosed with OCD. And I'm like, wow, this is interesting. Like He said something about unforgivable sin and he talks about. OCD and then I thought to myself well I wonder if it's scrupulosity so I um I um then I text him back and I remember I said I got diagnosed with OCD specifically it's scrupulosity OCD and he said well I could kind of tell because of the things you were telling me and then he says that's so it's really interesting that we both are going through the same exact thing and I'm like after that, I, I I really believe I healed fast, because I just didn't believe it was an, I'm, a I'm a coincidence. Sorry, I was going to say the miracle. I believe it was a miracle. I believe it is um, with like in my whole heart because um, it just I mean there's like OCD and a lot of people aren't aware of this, but OCD is an umbrella term. It's not like check, checking or like hand washing all, like all the time. It's there's a whole bunch of different subtypes that I didn't even know about until I learned about it. And for somebody to have the same exact subtype and then the same um uh, what would you say? No um, obsession. Um, because even with scrupulosity, you have different obsessions. But it was the same. And I'm like, how how can this be a coincidence? It just isn't. And like so these are like, I mean, there's a lot of different, like, sometimes people like, I think miracles are bigger as small. Like these, I don't know, these are two big ones, I'd say, for my friend Jennifer and, this, and then this other person. Um, but I just, it helped me actually to heal and have more faith in my Heavenly Father because I knew he's telling me, you actually have a problem and you need you need help and you didn't deny the Holy Ghost. You just have scrupulosity that's making you think you did. Um. But with all the people that I've met, like my sister that, that I talked to, like when I first talk, finally started talking to her, um, her and Jennifer, my friend and the bishop and my therapist, all were very compassionate people. And so they all played a vital role in my healing process. Every, and I look at all these people, I'm like, not everybody was meant to do the same exact thing when they help you on your journey. They are doing different things. Like there's, there's things that my, 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 my sister did to help me. And then obviously there's things that the, she can't do that the bishop can. And then the bishop's, you know, therapist needs to do the things that, you know, bishop, because he's, he's not a, well, he doesn't do mental. Well, I, I'm not saying like there's no, there's some mental health bishops out there that have mental health as a, as a profession. But their purpose is they're not mental health experts. So they refer you to, you know, like people that can do that. Um, but it's all that compassion that I've, that, that everybody showed to me that helped me in my journey and helped me to start healing.
0: So. Autumn, there's a bunch of listeners that want to <laughs> put their arms around you and thank you for your courage to share your story. And I'm going to ask you a question of what the trials taught you in a second. And that'll be the, you know, the end of the podcast as you answer that. But I just, just, um, thoughts that I wrote down as you were talking that really impacted me. You described the Holy Ghost way back in the beginning, and you said the Holy Ghost doesn't work through fear and anxiety, but love. It's just a passing comment you made, pretty powerful comment. Yeah. And I thought about, shouldn't we all be more like the Holy Ghost in our individual relationships with people? Is not motivate people out of fear, or anxiety, um, but motivate people and show love. Um, I, you're really brave to talk about this. You know, I'm aware of the unpartable sin and it's denying the Holy Ghost, and I would guess active Latter-day Saints are aware of this. But you, the way you connected the dots um, by not feeling the Spirit at times, wondering and concluding this is, and working so hard. I mean, you were working so hard um, compulsions with scripture study and prayer and feeding the spirit at times and trying to navigate all that. And and at the core of that wasn't obviously a spiritual weakness. It was, you know, a mental health issue. And um, I love that you, I do love that you went to the bishop, but the bishop's really good at solving s- spiritual yeah. um, things. And he showed compassion and did connect you with the therapist. But Um, And I'm not saying you shouldn't have gone to the bishop and people should, but it's sort of for those that are local leaders or parents or family members, we need to know about scrupulosity because spiritual challenges are solved with spiritual tools and mental health issues are solved with mental health issues. And you, of course, had concluded this was a spiritual weakness or a spiritual challenge and had worked through all the tools you were aware of as a committed Latter-day Saint to solve this. It doesn't surprise me that you were suicidal at times, um, and you're brave to talk about that, and I'm glad you're alive. Um, the other people that we've talked to about scrupulosity have felt similar feelings. Um, I love that you used the word reassurance with the bishop and how helpful that was, but how it also you recognized just perpetuated the cycle. And um, that's certainly true in other stories I've heard, and I recognize being a former bishop I didn't know anything about scrupulosity during my entire service. I didn't know what the word was. And I recognize in hindsight, I added this people's, I gave them reassurance and they, that was helpful, but it didn't solve, it didn't get to the bottom of the iceberg is what I call it at the bottom of the iceberg was not a spiritual weakness, um, but a mental health issue. I love that you recognize you wanted to live by certainty. Um, and know that you weren't (laughs) guilty of the unpardonable sin. And this was all out of love you're doing. If you just look at you, and this is where I get emotional, everything you're doing is out of love so that you can um, be okay in the next life, so you can be okay in this life, so you can help others. And all of this is just attacking, like one of my guests, Tim Chavez said, attacking the thing that scrupulosity attacks the things that's most important to us. And to you, that's I want to be square with God and I want to live with him in the next life and I want to help other people and if, if I'm guilty of the unpardonable sin, how am I going to do any of that?
1: yeah, and I also say I'd also say that it was my my value to me was my salvation
0: yeah and so um the other thing I hope you recognized is how quickly you healed and how quickly that therapist that had training in that area diagnosed you in the first 15 minutes. In chapter seven of this book, where we talk about our own son, our youngest son, we're seasoned parents. We thought we kind of knew most things. And we've got this kid on a mission really struggling um, in a difficult spot. And none of the people around him understood. We'd recognized they're a missing piece of the puzzle. He's in Samoa. We're face-tying him. We just know that this really capable, remarkable young man is in a tough spot. And um, you can read this in the book, listeners. and I don't want to shift too much from Autumn's story, but i my wife and I were fasting and praying um to help this kid. <laughs> we knew he was emotionally stable enough after a period of time to be there. Um, and that was important that we all concluded. and but he didn't know if it was sustainable. It was sustainable for short the next short period of time. But I went to lunch with the you know my my friend who's a therapist here in Salt Lake. And I just started to describe what was going on. And he Googled something on his phone and handed it to me. And it was the word scrupulosity. And he, like your therapist diagnosed it in the first 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And we took that tentative diagnosis to all the people that were involved in his life, as mission president, state president, his bishop. And it was, we didn't try it as parents diagnose him, but it is indeed what was going on with him. And he had a therapist on America Samoa that had training on this. And she was living on the island, and he was able to receive the training he needed and then went to Dr. Deborah McClendon, who I referenced earlier, that's been on a couple podcasts. So this is real, Um, and it attacks the things that this kid is so committed to wanting to be people into Christ. Um, I talked about Tim Chavez in Chapter 7. Tim served his whole mission Believing that he was beyond salvation. But he could continue to serve because he could bring others to salvation and exaltation. And that's where scrupulosity put him. And that's where scrupulosity has put you for two decades. Um, And some of you are my heroes. But listeners, I'm so grateful that Autumn stepped forward. and We're going to let her talk again. we need to figure this out. We need to talk about it. We need to have fist Sundays and firesides. And I wish it was somehow a part of our curriculum, so every parent and every local leader could understand scrupulosity, so they could recognize it in the people they have stewardship responsibility, like parents, friends, and local leaders. Because it's just needless suffering. That and I love the thing I love about scrupulosity is just like you said, you healed really fast. It's not like a 20-year, you were in this for 20 years, Autumn, and you needed 20 years to heal. Um, And some mental health challenges are lifetime experiences. Um, This doesn't need to be. This can be one you can heal from. Um, So those are just some thoughts, listeners, as I've tried to understand this space. Um, But now tell us in this closing segment um, what the trial has taught you.
1: I think one of the biggest things I want to start with is that Heavenly Father has taught me that trials can be very long and they can be very hard. But keep in mind, I didn't even know this was a trial to begin with. When I had these thoughts, I thought that I was a son of perdition. I thought that I was going to hell for all eternity and I thought I would never get out of this. And so I was relieved to find out that, you know, it was just something that I could heal from because I was too convinced I was far gone. I was too convinced. Um, and so it kind of reminds me of, I like to relate this, and it reminds me of like Abraham and Sarah in the Old Testament. Because so, you know, when Sarah was like, I think she was 65 when um, they were promised um, they'd have a child. And then, they didn't have Isaac until she was 90. So I think I would assume like up until she was 65, they probably thought, well, we're never going to have children. And and then, and then at 65, okay, well, how long are we going to have to wait for this? And so we had to wait for another, like 25 years. And, it, and I relate it in the, in the sense that, um, so for the longest, you know, two decades, I thought that I was, you know, maybe up, especially like the first you know, 15 years after it happened, all this stuff happened. I thought, well, I'm never going, I'm not going to heaven and I'm not going to feel happiness, see my mother again. I passed away when I was three. and um, But then to come out of this after like two decades um, was such a relief. But then, you know, but then it, after I felt that relief from knowing that I hadn't committed the horrible, sin, then I still felt like, well, why am I not healing? If the bishop's telling me this, I'm reading these things, I'm having all these experiences, and I'm not healing, what is going on? And so then I got finally got diagnosed with OCD. So it's like kind of like really like my diagnosis of OCD is when they, you know, like the late like with Abraham and Sarah, like, you know, they're like, oh, you know, oh, we we can have children, but when is this gonna happen? But then once once I got diagnosed with OCD, I finally, a lot of these questions I had um, were answered. All these unknowns that I just, I couldn't understand. Because it's like, I felt like Heavenly Father was saying, you can have this and this and this. And I'm like, well, thinking to myself, if I, if, if I feel like I've committed the horrible sin, but then you're telling me this, these are contradicting each other. And I would say that to him, like, they don't make sense. And because I didn't know it was, it was a mental disorder. I thought it was completely a faith issue. Um, but then I know Heavenly Father, like through those people, through my friends that knew about scrupulosity, um, Heavenly Father wants me to know through them that he, he he's aware of me. He's like, I know you've gone through this. I know you had scrupulosity way before you even knew. And I want you to know that I love you and I want you to have help. And it's like with your children, it's like, yeah, you... Sometimes they have to go through trials and stuff with, when they grow up. But you're still going to at least, you know, you're going to give them the things they need to heal. So instead of just my Heavenly Father saying, I love you, but never helping me or never doing anything about it, that's how He shows me He loves me, is giving me the people and the tools I need to heal. So that really showed me how much He absolutely loves me, is giving me the help I need. Um, then I also want to say, like, OCD. Isn't over for me. I think I'm going to have OCD for the rest of my life. Um, and the thing about this is with, with my scrupulosity, I still have every now and then, it's not the, my, I'd say the cycle is pretty, pretty low right now. And it's where I want it to be. I have no anxiety with it right now. But I can come across like a quote or, a, or, or some type of article that might word. Uh, talk about the partible sin, but might talk it in a different way. They might they might not talk about it the same way. And then it might spark a little sense of doubt. And then it might give me an urge to do compulsion. And then if I start to do compulsions, I will be way far away than what I am right now. And then I'll be like, I know I haven't done this, but my doubts will be so strong again. My uncertainty will be so strong. So what I have to do and what I've learned in like therapy is I have to kind of like, when these thoughts come in and stuff, I have to just kind of sit with them and just let them pass. Like, and I have to resist doing my compulsions. And I'm not trying to like, you know, tell people about like uh, giving advice, what, what a therapist should do, but um, that um, I have to, the compulsions in OCD, that is what drives the cycle. And so what's, I just want to say that, Cause like when you're young, you know, your parent, like if you say, well, you know, mom or dad, I'm having really bad thoughts. I think most of the parents, if not all of them are going to say to you, don't think those thoughts, push it out, stop thinking them. But with OCD, that's actually not what you want to do. You don't want to like think the bad thoughts, but like suppressing the bad thoughts is what drives the cycle. And then doing this compulsions too. And like when I back up to like that time when I said that I thought I got a warning from the Holy Ghost when I was up on the roller coaster ride? I think after that, I I think I thought to myself, okay, I am not going to let this happen. And I think I started suppressing those thoughts, and I think that might have been how it got worse. Um. And then I'm still trying to understand the Spirit even now, and um, there's times when I just feel like. Like I I hear people at church, I hear, especially fast and testimony, meaning can be kind of, they talk about their spiritual experiences and like um, all these like manifestations of the spirit. And like, I compare myself to them. And then I get really down on myself and thinking, Heavenly Father doesn't, you know, I, I, I feel in myself, even recently, this was like three, three weeks ago, actually. Heavenly Father just doesn't want to bless me. He doesn't love me as much. He wants everybody else, all of his other children, to be happy and to have these incredible spiritual experiences, but me. And then, even like I mentioned three weeks ago, I was actually, I was worried because I felt myself. I was worried that I was drifting from Heavenly Father's influence. Like I'm like, I I, I was worried that I was going to go inactive, and I don't want to go inactive. But I was worried that I was just going to give up and start trying, and so. Um, so actually a couple of weeks ago, um, our Relief Society had a, a, um, activity and I went to it and I was actually going to just drop my stuff off and leave, but I stayed. And I just started to, all well, that stuff was on my mind and some other things that happened that day too, but I was just fed up with this. Um, and I told, and then right when, um, they, you know, talked about what the activity was. I was about to leave and then I started crying and um, the one of the Relief Society presidency members came over and she just let me cry and she just talked to me and she said just really wonderful things um, to me and um, it really helped. But when I was sitting there and we were talking, another sweet sister of the ward was sitting at a table right next to us and she was like, She was, I I could see in the corner of my eyes, she was standing up and she was coming like around behind me. And I think, and what's she doing back there? (laughs) But she came over and she, she's like, I just need to give you a hug. And she came over and she wrapped her around her hands, her arms around me from behind just gave me a hug. And we started talking. And then eventually she, she told me that she was prompted by the spirit to come over to me. And that Heavenly Father needs me and Mom, And I believe she said that the spirit was persistent. He's like, no, she, you need to go over there and tell her that her Heavenly Father loves her. And she needs to know that. And that just changed me after that. like After those few weeks that I stopped that, this was two weeks ago. Um, I think two, two and a half or something like that. I haven't worried about it. I haven't worried about like going inactive again. It was exactly what I needed, and I can understand why she was prompted to to tell me that. And I think my Heavenly Father, I really believe He's telling me that I just need to, when things get hard and tough with like my OCD and stuff, I just need to understand that He loves me and that this is just, this is my, like, things with my mental health, and that He wants the best for me, and He loves me, and He wants me to make progress and just to just to hang in there or hang in there and i think that, that i really believe that that's exactly what he's saying but i also really believe that he's telling me that the spirit does speak to us in different ways and it's not just like one one way all the time sometimes like i mentioned like he could prompt somebody to come and do something for us that we need but and sometimes the spirit like shows us um, tells us things, or we can feel our Heavenly Father's love directly, or we can. It can be through other people, and so I just need to understand and accept that His love is just—it's—it's it's real and it's just as special, no matter which way it comes to me. And I just need to value that. And I think that that's one of the things I re- I um, learned from that, and it really did change me after that. So I can understand why. Um, and a big part of this of what the trials taught me is that we can't judge other people i have gone through this you know ocd and a very complex thing and it's really easy for us to when we haven't experienced these things that we need to that our that um sometimes we judge when we don't understand certain things um so i have i feel like i have more compassion for like marginalized people. So for instance, I understand more about people who are going through scrupulosity and even other subtypes of OCD, even though I don't know exactly what they go through, but I can understand how bad it is with obsessions and compulsions. Um, and then I, I'm feeling more for like people that talk about like depression and um, you know anxiety and stuff and just how complex and how bad it can be and how we just, a lot of us don't understand. And then it kind of, I feel like it's, you know, I'm starting to understand and have compassion for people that are like, for instance, having a faith crisis and people who are LGBTQ because I mean, and I'm not in any way saying that people who have a faith crisis or who are LGBTQ is a mental issue. It's not. I'm just saying that these different categories, I feel like they are really complex and that when we don't understand them, we can then judge well, you know, they, they get judged and marginalized and they don't get the compassion and the acceptance that they need. And so it's helping me to just, it's kind of spilling over into, into different categories. And that's a, I'm really happy about that. You know, I'm starting to understand different things, not just mental health issues, but other things. Um, and then I'm just, I feel more for like people who are early release missionaries. And I think it's, I think it's interchange with like early return or something like that, but When I was young, I had this false assumption. Um, I have, um, I think this was with the the church culture when I was young. Um, Oh, sorry. That's, that's Heather. Um, When I was, um, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Sorry about that. Um, When I was young, um, I thought when I, um, heard the word, oh, somebody's early, early, early return missionary or so-and-so got off the mission early. The first thing that would come into my mind is, oh, that they, they must have committed some serious sexual sin um, on their mission. Um, and that's why they're getting released early. Um, it didn't really dawn on me that, oh, maybe it's something that it's out of their control. Maybe, maybe it's mental illness. I had no idea. And so these missionaries that are coming home early because mental health and, you know, there's other reasons. Some that I probably I'm not aware of. Um, they, they're like in a lot of pain, you know, and they just need love and compassion. And all the while, sometimes some missionaries, are, you know, there's people around them that are probably like looking at them saying, well, what did you do? You know, why did you get off your mission early? And that's they don't need that. And I'm not even going to say that's the last thing they need. They don't even need that period. They just need, they need help and they need compassion because it's hard enough. You know, a lot of people I've heard when they get off their missions early, they're, you know, especially if it's a mental health issue and then they didn't want to leave. So they, so they're, they're not able to continue with their mission. They wanted to serve the Lord. And now they, and then they have this issue with mental health. So it's like, it's really, I feel like it's really just important for us to just really understand that. So, cause I feel like early release missionaries is actually like, I feel like they're marginalized too. I could, I, I think so because, you know, like when we don't understand them and that's it's not just committing sin. I think that that's, that does happen, but there's a lot of reasons why mental health, I think is a big reason why missionaries get sent home early. And I think I would assume like with me, that that might be the first thing that people think on, on their minds when they see so-and-so get off their mission early is, oh, did they commit something? Did they not disclose something before they went on their mission and they finally disclosed it on their mission? Um, and then I, I want to say like, we shouldn't use, I feel like we shouldn't use having not served a mission or coming home early um, as a gauge for like, current worthiness or future temple like temple worthiness um so when i back to i like to go back <laughs> but when i was young this was the church i believe this was church culture and i think it is today because i'm listening to stories and i don't think i listened to a few podcasts um concerning this but when i was young um i feel like a lot of young women are told oh you should marry a return missionary um and, um, and at the time I liked that idea, you know, I was young. Cause I thought, I thought going on a mission was like being in like church military, you know, you go on a mission, you serve, you fight and serve, serve the Lord and fight for the Lord. And then you, and then you get honorably discharged. And then, you know, I thought that was just an attractive quality. And I thought, well, missionaries are cute. So why not? Um, so I was like, sign me up, I'll do it. <laughs> but. Um, Now that you know, going through this mental illness, and there's a lot of, and it's we shouldn't, like I mentioned, we, I feel like we shouldn't use that as a worthiness issue. Um, There are a couple people I know, at least, and I'm learning more and more as I hear more stories, but I know of one person, he in the church, he did not serve a mission, and he and his wife got married in the temple, and they are doing, just really phenomenal in the church. And then there's another person I know. And he, he actually served the 24 months, the typical 24 months. And, um, he, um, as far as I know, I wasn't there, but I really believe based on kind of what I've learned and stuff is, you know, he got married in the temple to his wife, but not only has he left the church is he's totally against the church. So, you know, and then, And then another example, this is, I know one person, like, um, one couple, well, you know, you know, the husband, the, the husband went on a mission and, um, you know, the wife didn't, but she left the church. So, you know, you can't, you can't really, you don't know what's going to happen in the future. And it's not, like I said, it's not a basis of worthiness. Like, you know, the, like people have, okay, um, and then I, I kind of understand that um, personal revelation is um, a reason that um, for people not serving. And I, you know, I didn't realize that, that until like, I understand now. So I'm really grateful for learning that. Um, and then if I, I wouldn't be able to help others if, um, if, um, if I didn't know about this. And so there's, like I said, there's a really big stigma with mental illness. And if we know about, more about mental illness, we can, you know, show more compassion, less judgment, and then we can, um, people can open up and then start their healing process too.
0: Autumn, this is one of our very best podcasts we've done on scrupulosity. And um, you've been on this road a long time, which really helps listeners and just have a lot of perspective and insights. And I love where you then said, "What has this taught you?" And then all the positive things that have come into your life and your ability to help and see improve our culture. So I love where you kind of then pivoted and talked about all these other groups of people that are walking a hard road and wanting to show more compassion and and empathy and understanding. So that's just terrific and to me. That's creating Zion. So you're really remarkable. And um, just some closing thoughts. You know, exposure response therapy is. I don't know, is often the therapy that's used. I'm not a therapist, but it's sort of living with these thoughts and sort of being at peace and not living with certainty. So I also recognize um, Autumn talked a lot about she couldn't open up. How can you open up with somebody when these thoughts are in your mind, like you are thinking or concluding you've committed the unpardonable sin? And there's a whole bunch of thoughts that those that are scrup- have scrupulosity think in their brain, and often they're so... They're so, I don't want to label them, but it's really hard for them to open up to others because it's hard to say, this is what's in my mind. Um, I also like where you said, um, when people say, well, just don't think that, one of my guests said, you just can't not think something. And so the advice I would give you as a parent, well, don't think that is often the very thing that makes you more think of something. And so I love, there's so many nuggets in this podcast. People will probably listen to it a couple of times. Um, those were some of the ones that I wrote down listeners. So, um, you know, I really am grateful. Autumn reached out to me and I'm really grateful we did this podcast on scrupulosity. And I'm grateful for the woman that Autumn is and the, the experiences she's had and the insight she She You're really brave and articulate. And I feel the spirit as you talk. so You've done a great job. And so this is Autumn White and Richard Osler signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.